All right, Second Kings 17. Second Kings 17. We got through the first 23 verses of Second Kings 17 last week, and at that point, the northern kingdom is no more. While some of the ten tribes, the people of Israel, remain in the land, uh, many of them have been deported to different cities across the Assyrian kingdom. And, and these cities span from the region of, of Syria, where the modern-day Kurds live, all the way to Tehran, Iran, south of the Caspian Sea. They are scattered all over, all over. And while Judah is the only tribe with autonomous rule that's left, the people still lived in the northern part of the Promised Land. So at the end of this chapter here, before the writer moves on to Judah, he explains this. He answers some questions. Who are these people? You know, what was life like for them? And most importantly, what did, what did God think about all that? So chapter 17, we begin in verse 24. So this is after the Israelites have been taken captive. It says, and the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, from Kutha, and from Ava, and from Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria, and they dwelt in the cities thereof. Now, uh, Kutha is a city east of Babylon. Uh, of course, Babylon doesn't need any explanation. Um, Ava is a city in northern Syria. Hamath is another city in northern Syria. And Sef Arvim, we don't know for sure. It could either be a city in Syria or Babylon. So basically, he took a bunch of different peoples from the Babylonian kingdom that they conquered and the Syrian kingdom they conquered, and he imported them to Samaria. Now, in addition to this, he had brought in the aristocrats, like wealthy aristocrats from Assyria. So he brought in Assyrians as well, and he had them populate that area. I've got a map that shows the Assyrian provinces. I think we have a map. Yeah, there we go. That's a little small. But basically what you see here, you've got Judah down here. They're still autonomous. You got Moab and Edom there were slightly autonomous, but all of this all of this right here uh, was Israel, the northern kingdom. And now it's all portioned up into all these different, um, basically different uh, districts in the Assyrian empire. And he imported, imported people from Assyria into all these places except this one spot right here, Samaria. And there he took Babylon, people from the area of Babylon and people from the area of Syria and imported them there to mingle with the remaining Israelites. So... These were all different people groups, including the Israelis that the Assyrians had conquered. And so just as they removed the Israelites, many of them from the promised land and placed them in other parts of the Assyrian empire, they brought these people in from other parts of the empire and placed them into the promised land. Um, like I said, a few Israelis remained in the northern part of the promised land, but this made the population very diverse. And that was the Assyrians' goal. They, they, when you have that much intermingling of cultures and peoples, and it's very difficult to remain a homogenous people. I mean, when, look at our own nation. I mean, what are we? We're Americans. What is that? Like, seriously, like all of us usually tie our heritage to something else, right? Like, I'm, a, I'm, 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 I'm 50% German, I'm a quarter Puerto Rican, and I'm a quarter bunch of other little stuff, mostly Jewish. But like, I, I mean, I'm not, I don't have anything that's from here. Uh, because we have people groups that all came over here from different places. We have kind of become this amalgamated people. Now, we've got our own ideas about life now because we've been doing this for 300 years, you know. However, 
when you start like that, you've got a lot of different ideas. That's why if you go to older cities like New York City or other places, you've got Chinatown and you've got, I don't know, you know, you've got, you know, Hasidic Jewish population. You've got these groups that congregate. Um, you know, we, we even have it in Orlando. You know, you've got, you've got areas. Uh, where I, so where I worked at Evans High School, that area particularly in, in uh, Pine Hills, it had a lot of ethnic groups that lived kind of in the same area, you know? And so, you know, I had, it's funny because I had interesting diversity in my, 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 uh, my staff because, uh, you know, I had, I had uh, a group of like, uh, gr- ladies from Trinidad and Tobago. I had a group from, from uh, they were Haitian and another group that were Jamaican. They all hated each other. Not lying. Uh, it was uh, when I first got there. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're going to kill each other, you know. And and and, and I had to, you know, start explaining. Hey guys, we got we're a team. We got we got to work together, and you got to put put away all those prejudices and things like that. We're all working to serve these kids and stuff, you know. And the cool part was, is you know, it worked. I, I remember I had uh, my my uh, head cook. She uh, she would come in, and, and she knew I was a pastor, and and she said to me, she said, Mr. Will, she said, you need to come out here and pray with us every morning so we don't fight. And I was like, you want me to come like every morning? She's like, yeah, when you kind of give us our orders for the day, come out and pray for us. Cause, cause like we need something, we need supernatural help. And so I, I started praying. I would get the team together and I would tell them, I said, listen, if you know, you don't want to pray. I said, that's fine. I said, but if you'd like to, no one ever left. I had one dude who left and it's cause he didn't like me, but, but, and not the first, he was years later. But when I first started doing that, if I like came in and like things were like a hustle and bustle, whatever, and I, I just kind of gave quick instructions, they would all look at me like, you can't not pray for us. Like we're going to kill each other if you don't pray for us. So, you know, it, it was really cool. They got to work together with these different groups, but, and, and to work together as a team. The challenge is, is, you know, when you, when you have these strong ethnic ties, you, you try to hold on to them, Right. Well, but if you keep intermingling, you start to let down those walls. It was really cool because, you know, when you have kind of like a very diverse group like that, and especially when everybody is getting along, people would bring different, like, special foods they cooked, and they'd bring them in. And so, you know, I'd, you know, I'd learn the Indian food, you know, because I had a few folks that were from India that worked there, and then a couple of ladies from Trinidad and Tobago, they'd bring their food, and then Asian food, Jamaican food. I ate well. That's why I, that's why I look like I do. Um, but... When you, you have these groups of people who are living in these kind of pressure cooker situations, it's difficult to remain a homogenous people. There's less common ground for community, which means lower chances of organized rebellion. And, and that's what the Syrians wanted. See, over time, when you, you have to start depending on different people groups for your business or for your leisure, your social and religious distinctions, they become more blurry, which in turn lowers the chances of organized rebellion even more. It was an intelligent plan and uh, very effective throughout the Assyrian Empire. In fact, when the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians, they said, this was a good idea, and they continued that policy. But it did not account, this intelligent plan did not account for one thing, and that's the Lord. And the Lord was not like the gods of these other regions, not that they existed, but his character or the way he is, because the reason that makes him different is he actually exists. He's actually real. And because of that, the start of, the Assyria, of Assyria's resettlement plan in Israel did not go well. Look at verse 25. And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which slew some of them. Now, I realize they have TV shows when animals attack, whatever. But the concept is, all right, if I'm outside, you know, and I randomly see like a, a dog run after somebody, I don't think anything of it. However, 
If every day there are wild animals that are attacking people in my neighborhood, I'm going to start going, what is going on? Now, the Bible says God did this because they didn't fear Him. The word here, it, it usually is synonymous with worship, but in, spe- in specificity, it means they did not stand in awe of Him, they did not reverence Him, they did not honor Him. In other words, they did not give Him His due. God may have taken His favor off the ten tribes, but His favor has always been upon that land. Always. Always. And it always will be, by the way, whether Israel's trusting Him or not. And so, and that, that's true whether Israel's in the land or not. So, that these new people groups did not even acknowledge the Lord, but they just went on with their lives, went on worshiping their national deities with, it was an affront to the Lord. These lion attacks were so numerous, so violent, and so abnormal that it finally got their attention. They thought, this is bizarre. Perhaps there's a, a deity we've offended by our behavior. And so, verse 26, note, Wherefore they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them. Behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the God of the land. The manner, it means the normal practice of behavior. You see, people back then, they, they, their deities were geographically they were tied to geographical regions back then. The gods of the hills, the gods of the valley. For example, the gods of Baal uh, usually had a, a secondary name to them. So it would be like Baal Shemeth, you know, and that meant the Baal of Shemeth. I remember I was down in uh, South America. I was in Peru, and we were touring the... Um, <sighs> what was the... My brain just completely emptied. I want to say Holocaust, but it was the... It was the Inquisition, Inquisition. They had an Inquisition uh, museum there. And so we went to this Inquisition museum and, and you'd see all these horrible things, whatever, and just seeing what was going on. But then we passed into this room and it was filled with statues, statues of Mary. And I, the guide was trying to explain to us, she's like, this is the Lady Mary of, you know, da-da-da, and the Lady Mary so-and-so. And I, and I said, I, said I'm, I raised my hand at one point, I said, I'm confused. I said, they're just all Mary, right? And she goes yeah, but no. And I was like, what? Explain. I'm I'm confused. And she goes, well, this is a specific statue where this statue was blessed by a cardinal or the pope or somebody important, and it was brought to the city, and it became their Mary. And so it was not just that it's Mary, but it's their specific statue that they would venerate and bow down to and sing to. And I thought to myself, It's just modern ball worship. And that that idea of a deity being tied to a city, we need to honor this deity or this special figure, this special spiritual figure, so that we can be blessed. And so that's what it was like, um, you know, back then. So basically, they send off this messenger, the king of Assyria, and they go, we have a problem. We don't know what Yahweh is like. We don't know how he wants us to act, and it's causing problems for us. Now, our Lord is not tied to any region, but this scenario poses an important question to all of us. Do you know what the Lord is like? Do you know what He wants? Do you know how He wants you to act? And if you don't, how do you and I find the answers to those questions? 
Well, the good news is I'm not left to figure out the answers on my own. I don't have to kind of imagine it out of the air. I don't have to go, well, I think God might be like this. It's funny conversing sometimes with people, and they say, well, my God's like this. And I'm like, yeah, but that means, you, you know, your God doesn't exist because you've created him out of your own head. You don't get to define what your God is like. It doesn't matter what you and I think God is like. I, I have so much incomplete information on God in and of myself. It's an absurd notion to think that I would go, well, I think God's like this, and I'm hitting the mark. That's an absurd notion. The Bible talks about how uh, unbelievers, they create a God to suit themselves. We make them in the fashion of like us, right? Or what we would hope we could be. For example, you know, we think to ourselves, oh, I got so much work to do, you know? I wish I had eight arms. So we give this little idol eight arms, right? He's bigger than us. And I want, I want, him to, I want, I want to worship someone that can help me be what I want to be. But thankfully, we are not left to figure those answers out on our own. Here's the other good news. You and I also don't need to go to another man or woman to find out the answer. God loved us so much that he communicated the answers to us through his word. He spoke to us. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it tells us a beautiful thing. It says that through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, we have this according to his divine power, which has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue whereby this knowledge we have that he's given to us, we have unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. When we fasten a God to suit ourselves, it's because, well, I want God to be a certain way. I, want, I think that's right, or I think that's, that's helpful, or I think that's beneficial. But when I get to know who the Lord is because of who he reveals himself to be, we have beautiful promises that are associated with that. Amen? I mean, it's not just this random idea or this random thing, but rather God says, I'm like this, and you can count on this at all times. I don't know what your life is like, but I know that I get bombarded with all sorts of powerful feelings and emotions at times that seek to kind of derail my life, derail my my day. And it's always wonderful to look back and say, well, God is like this, and that never changes. Amen? So where does your understanding of what the Lord is like come from? Where do you get it from? What, what has formed your understanding of how He wants you to act? You know, is it the teaching of a religious organization? Is it, is it born out of your own heart, or does it come from God's Word? You know, this is why there is so much emphasis in all of our Bible studies on you reading God's Word for yourself. So I'll be emphasize it over and over and over again. You know, you probably hear it every, every time you come to a Bible study. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Apply it to your life. Because if you're not reading it, you won't know the answer to either of those questions. You, don't, you won't know what the Lord is like, and you won't know how He wants you to act. So you read your Bible. Apply it to your life. And that was not the king's solution. The king's solution was, let's bring back a deported Israeli priest. He can help you. Verse 27. Well, then the king commanded, saying, carry thither one of the priests whom you brought from thence, and let them go and dwell there, and let him teach them the manner of the God of the land. And he's like, all right, we'll get it. God, bring back a priest. Well, verse 28. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel. 
and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Now, if he was carried away from Israel, that means he's not a Levite, which means he shouldn't be a priest to begin with. So he doesn't know how to worship the Lord correctly because he hasn't been worshiping the Lord correctly. In 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 31, we read here that, oops, that's not the right verse. I bet it's 1 Kings. 1 Kings 12, 30, uh, 12 31, it says that Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, it says, and he made a house of high places and he made priests of the lowest of the people which were not of the sons of Levi. And so this guy who's not a Levite, he comes back and it says he settles down in Bethel. Now, remember what's important about Bethel. It's one of the two locations where those golden calf worship centers were placed. So what happens when you bring in a person the Lord didn't call, who isn't walking in obedience to the Lord, and who doesn't know the Lord? What happens when you bring that guy in to teach people about the Lord? What happens is the people think they're learning about the Lord, but they aren't. And that is a dangerous thing. You know, if someone walks up with a pitchfork, or let's, you know, be real. When we hear, you know, one of the leaders of Hamas saying, you know, we didn't tell him in our soldiers, you know, we didn't command them to kill citizens. We, we commanded them to attack, you know, deep weapons depots and military targets. And, and they're going into houses, not any military targets, not even businesses. And you look at that, we can look at that and go, that's evil. Not only was a horrible thing committed, atrocious murders, but then denying it to your face in front of all the world, that's one thing that we can see as evil. We look at that and we go, no. However, it's a whole different thing when somebody comes in a place like this and says, I'm going to tell you about the Lord. And you go, cool, I'm learning about the Lord, but you're not learning about the Lord. That's dangerous, very dangerous. Whatever this guy taught them didn't come from God's Word. Whatever he had been teaching them or was going to teach them was a, a human philosophy of God and life, which is always going to result in a worship practice that has the Lord's name on it, but it has nothing to do with the Lord. Now, we go through, you go through church history, and from the very beginning, we have times where we see that, Right? where the name of the Lord is on something, but it has nothing to do with the Lord. And then you go through different periods in history where it's really bad, and then it's not so bad, right? That's always been the case when you look at history. So that means that we could see the very same thing today, that we could look at something and it could say, church of whatever, church of Jesus, you know, first whatever, and have a name on it that is associated with the Lord and could have nothing to do with the Lord. And so, what happens then is you see results that bear no marks of the character of the Lord. And so, when we see the results here from this guy's influence, we see a worship that resembles nothing that reflects the character of God or how He wants us to act. Look at verse 29. Howbeit every nation made God's 
of their own and put them in the houses of the high places which the Samaritans had made. Every nation in their cities wherein they dwelt. I have no doubt, I have no doubt this priest tried his best to get these people groups to be loyal to the Lord. I have no doubt of that. I have no doubt that he probably thought he was doing the right thing. I have bumped into individuals who are pastors or leaders in, in their church, and, and they're nice people, and, and, and they truly seem to have a sincere desire to see somehow the Lord be magnified. But it's so far off from anything that we see the Lord associated with. A worship that is inspired by human ideas rather than God's commands does not have the ability to bring about godly results. It just doesn't have the ability. So, 27 years I've been doing this. There have been moments when either individuals have pressured me to stop just teaching the Bible and say, you need to address these things. Or I've even sensed pressure. You know, like, do I need to change? Do we need to move off this path and, like, address these things? And every single time it's come down to this. I don't have the ability to do what God's Word can. So we're going to fall back on that which has the ability to do what you and I need every time. <laughs> we're going to stay there. Perhaps you've wondered how a church could get so far away from God's Word, and yet the people who lead it and attend it seem like they sincerely desire to follow Jesus. It's not because they're hypocrites. It's not even because they're not sincere. It's because they have adopted a different standard than the one God gave us in His Word. And the truth is, that can happen to any of us if we decide to make something else our standard. You know, it, it's funny, my, my wife is feisty. And uh, I love that about her. One of the things I, I, I one of the reasons I, I was always attracted to her because she's gorgeous. But one of the reasons I, I really fell for her was I would come over the house and because we did stuff as friends, and her Bible was always out. It was always out. And, and I love, you know, the, the things that, that, you know, were valued to her. And so she's always had this little feistiness. She's short, so you know, she's got to make up for it with feistiness. And there are times when I'll, I'll kind of sense she's frustrated. I'm like, what, what happened? She's like, ah, you know, I, I, she has friends who have left the faith or they've gotten weird in their faith and stuff. And she's like, and they, you know, they, 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 they want to talk about Jesus all the time, but they, don't, they just reject the scriptures. She's like, why not just call yourself something else? And I, and, and I totally get that frustration because you just, it doesn't make sense to me. But it can happen to any of us with the best of motives if we make something else our standard. I don't normally do this, but like a guy like Andy Stanley, I don't think he's insincere. I don't even, I don't get the vibe that he's not trying to do God's work. However, he's made it very clear though that he, he doesn't believe that this was always around for the church and therefore it's not the basis of the church. He says that he doesn't 
believe that this is sufficient. Therefore, you know, it's, it's got to be something else that God is doing in us to lead us. And, and so because of that, you, you find these statements that will be made that are far removed from the Scriptures. So, so again, I, it's easy to look at somebody like that and just think, oh man, he's just a, you know, an evil guy. No, no, I, I'm, I'm fairly positive that he sincerely wants to serve people and wants to serve the Lord. I, I think there may even, I don't know his heart, but there's very likely some kind of affection that's there for the Lord or the idea of the Lord. But when you remove yourself from a standard of, of God's Word, anything is, is possible. Like you can come up with any idea because then there is no standard. You become the standard. You know, I know we've been talking about like the gifts of the Holy Spirit on, in the morning and what a beautiful thing that God works that way. But, it, but if we remove this and we just decide to go, we're just going to follow the Holy Spirit and ignore the fact that the Holy Spirit gave us this, and that one of the rules Paul lays down is he's never going to go against this, right? When we ignore that, and we, we say, well, we're just going to be led by the Spirit, we're going to do that. Without the boundary of the Scriptures, anything's possible because you no longer have any standard. There is no standard. You are the standard. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord instructed Joshua, do not depart from the left or the right. He says, the book of the law should not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then shall you make your way prosperous, and then you shall have good success. You know, when you, again, this is a, Annie Stanley will say, I don't see any reason to teach the Old Testament anymore. When I see God make a statement like that to Joshua, who's not a priest, he's not a preacher, okay? He's a, he's a political leader. He's a, he's a man who's trying to follow the Lord and lead the people. And God tells him, you want to do things right? Then stick to my word and don't go here and don't go here. So that would lead me to believe that this is important, <laughs> that the things that are in here are valuable to us, and we want to stay on that path, learn it, apply it to our lives, and not go to the left or right. I frequently will hear people say, well, these scriptures, they don't, they don't apply to our situations anymore, or, or these scriptures, you know, they were written to a different group of people, to which I would say, who is Jesus, what is Jesus saying when he talks about the scriptures in his own ministry? Like, who, what is he referring to? Like, like, what were his disciples thinking? Were they sitting there going, oh, this is great. I can't wait till Matthew's written so I can start doing what Jesus said. No, not at all. These were the scriptures Jesus referred to. And Paul says the words, you know, for all scriptures given by inspiration, there was still a portion of the New Testament that wasn't complete yet. He explains to Timothy the things that you had learned from your mother and your grandmother when they taught you the Holy Scriptures. He's probably talking about the Old Testament there. And so in 1 Timothy 4.16, he tells Timothy, take heed unto yourself and unto the teaching, the doctrine." Take heed. It means pay attention to it. Continue in them the teachings. For in doing this, you shall both save yourself and those who listen to you. I mean, that sounds like 
Like this is something we should know, that we need to know. I, I've heard some people say the Old Testament's boring, to which I would say, come to a service here, because I just don't find it to ever be boring, and you guys don't seem to fall asleep too often. So. And I would say that's probably more user error than Scripture problem, if you do. Back in 2 Kings 17, in verse 29, this is the first mention of the word Samaritan in the Bible. Uh, We interact with the group of Samaritans quite a bit in the New Testament. This name Samaritan came about for two reasons. First off, because as I showed you on the map, uh, it was hard to see, but the Assyrians named that district of their empire Samaria. So that's the first reason it took on that name. But the second reason it took on that name is because the Israelis there and the other various people groups that the Assyrians imported, they started to intermarry. The bloodlines were no longer purely Israeli, and so we're going to read about this when we get to the book of Nehemiah and Ezra, but the Jewish people considered them to not be true Israelis because of that intermingling. So they became kind of their own unique people. These intermingled people, these Babylonians, Syrians, Assyrians, and Israelis who intermingled, they are the same Samaritans that we find in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. This is their origin story. These verses right here is their origin story, where they came from, and it's not pretty. It says here they followed every god of the places they came from. Like the people of Israel who were there before them and God judged These guys are full-blown idolaters, but they claim to follow the Lord. And so verse 32, actually, let's look at uh, verse uh, 30. And the men of Babylon, they made Sukkoth-Benoth. And the men of Kuth, they made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. The Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sepharvites burnt their children in the fire to Adrem-Melech and the Anamelech, and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. So they feared the Lord and made unto themselves the lowest of them priests of the high places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places." So in addition to worshiping the gods of their homeland, doing these horrible practices like sacrificing their children to these gods, it says they also feared the Lord. In other words, they went through the motions, the religious motions of giving the Lord some worship too. This guy said, well, this is what God wants. And this month, he wants you to bring an offering. And this month, he wants you to do this. So you do those things, and, and, you know, and then you'll be good, and God, you know, that'll be fine, and then you can do whatever else you want. And so they're like, okay. And they they made a priesthood. So they created their own priesthood that God did not pick, God did not choose. They made them of the lowest of them. So these were not, the, the word lowest there doesn't mean like the lowest of the people, like not the cream of the crop. It means the extremities, the uttermost part. Didn't matter how Israeli they were or not. It didn't matter if they had any closeness to the tribe of Levi or not. They just made anybody they wanted to. So these were not Levites from the line of Aaron and therefore not qualified to be priests to the Lord. And so while the religious motions of following Jehovah were present, there was no anointing from God. And when there's no anointing from God, there is no spiritual life. Look at verse 33. They feared the Lord, but look, and they served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they were carried away from. 
And unto this day they do after the former manners. They do not fear the Lord, neither do they go after their, uh, neither do they after their statutes or after their ordinances or after the law and the commandments which the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. In other words, they did not have any true reverence for the Lord. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, to love what God loves, to hate what he hates. They did not love what God loved. They did not hate what He hated. And when that is not present, it does not matter what religious activities you and I participate in, I don't really reverence the Lord. And a lack of genuine reverence for the Lord always leads to disobedient behavior. With all my kids as they're growing up, and it becomes a real challenge when they start getting close to teen years and then they become a teenager, is you have to start trying to transition, kind of impressing your relationship with God on them, and start asking them vital questions about their own relationship with the Lord. And so the problem comes up because when they start getting the age, they become unbearable. At times, not all the time, right? Like there'll be certain things they'll do and you're like, what were you thinking? And sometimes they give you an attitude and sometimes they don't know. And so the problem is, is that as parents, we tend to react to that and be like, you're insane, you know, or, or you're so selfish, or you're this, you're that, the other thing, and just kind of, you get frustrated. But what these are now is they become opportunities to ask them important questions. For example, they might give you a bad attitude, or they might make a bad decision, or be rude to somebody, or whatever it might be, and rather than getting frustrated with them, you pull them aside and you say, hey, can I ask you a couple questions about what just happened? What made you think it was okay to act like that towards your mother? Can you explain to me? Well, she did, okay. So you're saying she did this. So you're telling me it's okay to react negatively to somebody if they do something you don't like? Is that what you're telling me? Well, no. Okay, so let's start with question one again. What made you think it was okay to behave that way towards your mom? I don't know. Okay that's okay. What is your solution to the fact that you don't know why you behaved the way you did? What are you going to do now? I don't know. Let me give you some suggestions. Here's one suggestion. Talk to the Lord. Talk to Him about what you did. Ask Him to tell you why you did what you did. Ask Him to reveal in your heart if there's a reverence for Him there or if you just don't care. And sometimes even you might have a conversation with your child and say, you know, do you do you want to please the Lord? It's a genuine question to ask. Like, does, does it matter? Is it important to you what God thinks about your behavior? Of course it is. Okay, okay. I believe you, but what you just did, screaming something else. So, are you concerned by the fact that you behaved in a way that's different than the, say, the way you say you want to behave? Yes. What are you going to do about that? I don't know. I've got some suggestions for you. This is how you lead them. This is how you begin to invest into them and pour into them, not by you telling them what to do, but rather sending them to the Lord so that they can develop that fear of God, that genuine fear of God where they go, Lord, I don't want to displease you. When, when you get your kid to grab onto that, where they go, I want to please the Lord, they're going to be fine, no matter what happens. 
You can continue having good conversations with them no matter how much they're struggling with their behavior because now it's become something that they long for rather than something that you just long for them. So I know it's hard, moms and dads, because there are times you just want to go, but this is an opportunity to disciple them and to teach them about these important truths like fearing God. These guys did not fear the Lord, and so it led to this kind of behavior. They didn't do anything with God's statutes, His ordinances, or His laws as they're found in the Word that He commanded. Now, it's interesting, this never changed for the Samaritans. This is why Jesus said what He did to the Samaritan woman in John 4. I always thought it was a little harsh, but when I found out their history, I realized, I'm like, okay, Jesus wasn't being harsh, He's just being honest. In John 4, 22 through 24, when, when she kind of figures out, oh, he's trying to tell me about the Lord, she starts to make this a religious argument debate. She says, eh, well, when Messiah comes, he'll tell us where, you know, the Jews say we should worship here. My people say we should worship here. When Messiah comes, he'll answer all these things. She's trying to find a way out because Jesus has confronted her sin. And Jesus, he says to her in John chapter 4, 21, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither worship in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. But then he confronts the false teaching that she's been exposed to. He says, you worship what you don't know. That's a hardcore statement, isn't it? Like, that's heavy. You don't even know what you worship, lady. <laughs> like, you're all confused. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Again, heavy statement. Like, it's funny because sometimes you'll see individuals and they're, you know, you're trying to moderate between two groups. You're like, well, you make a good point. Jesus is like, no, 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 you're completely wrong. Like, there's nothing right about what you do. Salvation, there's no salvation in your, your, your worship, none. It's, it's with the Jews still. They've got, it, they've got it right at the core of it. But you guys, completely wrong. And yet the hour comes and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For that, the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. He says to her, he says, lady, you're under wrong teaching. They're, the Jews are right. But what really matters now is, are you going to do what God says or not? Because it's a requirement to worship God the way that He says He's to be worshiped. Do you know what you worship? Have you recognized that salvation comes only from the instructions given in God's Word? That blessing comes only from there? Back in 2 Kings 17, we see here that in verse 34, that God at the very end where He says, they're not doing any of this, they don't fear me. And He explains, but these were the things I commanded to the children of Jacob whom He named Israel. Now remember, that name change came to an individual first. Remember, Jacob meant dirty, sneaky thief. Do things your own way, right? Live your own life. Israel meant ruled or governed by God. Jacob's descendants were no different than him, and neither are we. We all need a name change. All of us do. And God did that for the nation of Israel. They didn't earn God's favor. He graciously invited them into a relationship with him, and he gave them a new name. So here's the facts. Assyria could call this province whatever they wanted to, but they could never replicate a right relationship with God through religious practice. They could never replicate a covenant people when those people aren't in relationship with God. Never. 
And so in verse 35, the Lord, through this author here, he reminds his readers of the covenant God made. Verse 35, with whom the Lord made a covenant, and he charged them saying, you shall not fear other gods, nor bow yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a stretched out arm, him shall you fear, and him shall you worship, and to him shall you do sacrifice. And the statutes and the ordinances and the law and the commandments which he wrote for you, you shall observe to do forevermore, and you shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, neither shall you fear other gods. But the Lord your God you shall fear, and he shall deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. Even after hurling the Israelites out of the land, the northern tribes out of the land, the writer reminds the exiles of Judah that he's writing to that God was the one who wanted a relationship with them. He was the one who initiated to bring them out of Egypt and into a place of blessing and favor. And we know this is true for us as well. First John chapter 4, we love him because what? He first loved us. He initiated with us. And it's because of that great love that we have now become God's covenant people and we have a new name. We do not replace Israel. We become this unique entity called the church that is a different covenant people that will be with him forever. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you real briefly. But it says, sorry, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. It says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. It means a specially chosen or set apart people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. Israel did not earn this new name and this new relationship with God by performing certain rituals. The Lord made the relationship possible by what he did, the miracles he performed to bring them out of Egypt, the miracles he performed to bring them God's word, and the miracles he performed to bring them into the land. And so in light of all God did for them and the relationship that God gave them, what was their part? Their part was to be faithful to the relationship with him, to keep that part of the, their part of the covenant was to be faithful in their relationship with him. And if they were faithful, God said he would continue to do awesome things for them and protect them. And when we examine what God did for them and what God gave them and what they needed to do, which party in the relationship failed to keep their side of the covenant? I mean, this is what all comes back to, the whole reason he wrote First Kings and Second Kings. Who which party in the relationship failed to keep their side of the covenant? Verse 40, Howbeit they did not hearken, but they did after their former manner. In other words, the way they lived before they entered the covenant with the Lord. They went back to Egypt without actually going back to Egypt. They just went back to living how they lived in Egypt. And so, let it never be said of us that we go through the religious activities of church or Christianity, but, but we approach life like we did before we gave it to Christ. Let that never be said of us. We have a better covenant that's based on Jesus' faithfulness, not ours. And that truth, that grace, it should only fill us with a greater sense of gratitude to obey. You know, we read in our scripture reading in John chapter 15 where Jesus says, hey guys, my Father's desire is to bless you, 
you bear lots of fruit. So my father loves me, I love you, and I want you to ask whatever you want, and I'll do it. And then he says this, I'm gonna ask you to do some things too. And if you love me, you'll do it. Do you see how it works? Relationship, it's not one-sided. I think too often we think of it that way. Like it's, you know, God wants me to do these things and I need to do these things. Yeah, but he's also said, I love you, I wanna bless you, and if you just come to me and trust me and ask me for things, I'll bless you, right? It's not this, it's not a one-sided relationship. It's a relationship, a true covenant relationship. Jesus says, my father loves you, I love you, so ask me what you desire and I'll do it for you. And if you love me, then you'll do what I desire you to do too. Unfortunately, Israel did not do that. And so what happens is, is in the north now, you've got a counterfeit people of God inhabiting the promised land. Verse 41, so these nations feared the Lord, went through the motions, and they served their graven images, both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers, so do they unto this day. The same mindset that Israel had toward the Lord when God drove them out of the land, it was adopted by these other people groups who intermingled with the remaining Israelis. And so this resulted in a false religious system, a counterfeit people of God that still existed when the author completed this book. And of course, it continued to exist all the way to the days of Jesus. We'll do the rituals, Lord, but we're also gonna worship other gods as we please and live how we please. Which brings up an important point. When we started 1 Kings eons ago, what was the author's goal that we talked about in writing this book? It was not to communicate to Israeli exiles, the northern tribes, it was to communicate to the Judean exiles in Babylon that God did not fail. That God kept every one of his promises. And that a promise of restoration remained to them if, if they would leave their idols and their excuses and their blame behind and return to the Lord. Here's the cool part. I think our author succeeded in his goal. Because when you get to the end of his book, it's a sad ending. Judah goes into exile too. But there's really good news if we know the rest of the story. Because the Judean exiles didn't end up like the Samaritans, did they? Even though they went through the same judgment, the people did repent and they did return to the Lord and God did restore them. There is a wonderful blessing that comes to us when we receive God's word and we decide to live it out. There just is. Because he's way more good than you want him to be. <laughs> he's way more gracious and kind and giving than you want him to be. And so I would ask you, is there something that God is speaking to you right now about as, as you've been reading his word? And if so, are you living it out? Are you living it out? Or are you holding on to something because you think, I don't know if God's good. I don't know if it'll work. Here's some more good news. God still doesn't fail. He kept his promise to them, but he keeps his promises to us. And he made 
a way to bridge the gap of our complete failure as sinners with his own blood. And if we'll repent and place our trust in him, though we have failed many times, the Bible tells us he will clothe us with his success, his righteousness, his faithfulness. And his success brings us into a better covenant where we will never be separated from him again. Amen? One final piece of good news in a book that has a lot of bad news. What did Jesus do with that Samaritan woman hundreds of years later? He said, no, you got it all wrong, lady. You're not even close to right. He said, if you're thirsty, I'll give you water to drink that never runs out. Yeah, you've got it all wrong. You're messed up. But I want to offer you something. Jesus invited the Samaritan woman into true worship. He invited the Samaritan woman, and then later on, her whole town, into God's family. Isn't that cool? You see how gracious God's been to you and me that he invites us into his family? I mean, some of us here might be true Israelis, like we've got that background. I dare say most of us are probably dirty Gentiles. We have no right to the promises of God, to the promises of the Messiah. And yet, he says, come, I invite you. Are you weary, heavy laden? I'll give you rest for your souls. Have you done wickedly and need forgiveness? Come, come. I'll wipe you clean. I'll bring you into my family. I'll make you a joint heir with me, a child of God who stands in my success and that'll never be taken away. That's good news. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, most of us probably have very interesting stories of who we were before we knew you. Lord, some of us probably had really weird ideas about God that we came up with out of our own mind, our own heart, and they were completely wrong. And yet, Lord, here we are tonight, forgiven, free, yours. Thank you for that amazing grace, Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for the invitation to be a part of your family. But we now, we own heaven. We own heaven. We have an inheritance waiting for us, even though we had no name prior to coming to you. Thank you so much for your kindness, Lord. Help us to live out what we have received, to walk in your ways, to trust you, that you're good, that you're faithful, and that you keep your promises always. In Jesus' name, amen.